This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. Since the summer of 2007, credit markets have hovered on the brink of collapse. Recovery in all financial markets seemed to be on the mend by early 2010, and then the Greek government restated their fiscal outlook and the sovereign credit crisis began. How will things play out in the Eurozone? Professor Edward Burton addresses whether the U.S. will face a double-dip recession in 2011. He's introduced by Cindy Frederick, UVA's Associate Vice President for Engagement. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. I'm pleased to be here, and it is my great honor to introduce Edwin Burton uh, to you today. He received his B.A. and M.A. in Economics from Rice University and his Ph.D. Uh, from Northwestern University. He began his teaching career at Cornell University and went on to teach at both Rice University and York College. Since 1988, he has served as professor of economics at the University of Virginia, and in addition to teaching, Professor Burton has held positions such as the senior vice president for Smith Marney in New York and president of Rothschild Financial Services. Professor Burton also currently serves as a, as, as, uh, as a consultant to several businesses and is very involved with Madison House, the student volunteer organization at UVA. I've had the privilege to know and work with Ed for nearly 20 years, and I personally think that he is one of UVA's esteemed treasures. To see him teach, interact with students, really gives you joy and hope for the future of our education system. He is an admired community leader and just an overall great guy. So please join me in welcoming Professor Ed Burton. It's great to see everybody. I'm honored to be in the illustrious company of Larry Savato and Kathy Thornton and others in this series on more than the score. Um, unfortunately, I feel I have the toughest topic of all, trying to forecast what the economy is going to do and try to explain, in part, what it has been doing. Before I get to that, though, I want to make a prediction about the football game. Um, <laughs> My, my student is the quarterback. Mark Verica is an economics major. He took both of the finance classes that I take. He is one of the most marvelous students here at the university. He has, as you know, struggled a little bit at the quarterback spot, but hopefully things will get better and he may pull off a victory today. So I will fearly, fearlessly forecast that we will, we will beat Miami today. That's my fearless forecast. And that Mark will have a career game this afternoon. He's a wonderful kid, so if you're out there, think good thoughts for Mark. He's a, he's a fine individual, and I'm honored to have had him as a student, and I hope he has a great day. And now we get to the tough part. What has been happening basically since 2007? When the first seeds of what we now have is a major recession, began to take place in the American economy. And very little actually was done early on. The housing market began, which is the main event, the housing market began to come apart in 2006, not 2008, not 2009. In 2006, you began to have not only housing prices start down in most every part of the country, but those who loaned money to the housing market began to be in big trouble. You had a number of prime mortgage, uh, subprime mortgage lenders go out of business in 06. More followed in 2007. And what's interesting about the timeline is that while the crisis really began in 2007, and really even earlier in 2006, the stock market hit an all-time high in October of 2007 when it pierced 14,000. This is well after subprime mortgage problems developed dramatically in the economy. Many subprime lenders had gone under. The asset-backed securities market had frozen up in the summer of 2007. All of these terrible facts were on the table in 2007 stock market went to an all-time high, 
And Lehman Brothers went to an all-time high, which it reached in October of 2007. Goldman Sachs hit an all-time high in 2007. The world was just wonderful in 2007, except that it wasn't. Except that all of the things that were going to come to the fore in 2008 were already present. And not only were they present, they were known. In the fall of, of 2007, Ben Bernanke was the Fed chairman. He had taken over from Greenspan earlier in the year. And at, by that point, Paulson was the Secretary of the Treasury. Both of those men were well aware that the asset-backed securities market had closed. There was no new origination in that market. Now, the asset-backed securities market is something I never taught my students about <coughs> 15 years ago. Why would you think I never taught them? It didn't exist. <laughs> it hardly existed at all. There were very few asset-backed security transactions prior to 1985. But by the time you get to 2007, 20% of all the credit that flows into the American economy flows through the asset-backed securities market. Not only in housing area, but in auto loans and credit card receivables, the asset-backed securities market had 20% of all the credit coming into the economy, and it was closed. Now, you can imagine that 20% of all the banks in America failed, and all, all that credit was no longer available. Something is likely to happen. And it was very clear something may happen. And if you go back and look at statements made by Bernanke and Paulson in August of 2007, Paulson said, well, this is just a blip. We'll get by this. Bernanke said, this is not a serious problem. We'll get past this. And yet all the facts were known at the time to both of them. They were certainly, the Federal Reserve itself collects the data on the amount of credit flowing through the economy. And it's in a Federal Reserve bulletin in late 2007 where you can get the data online that 20% of all the credit that came into the economy was coming through that one figure. And it wasn't clear what was going to replace that. And the implication at that point was very, very obvious. If you lose that credit, you're very likely to have a liquidity crisis. Liquidity is likely to be a problem for the economy down the road. Now, none of us were smart enough to know what form that would take and what would happen. And one reason a lot of people were naive about it, myself included, is our feeling was that the asset-backed securities market would restart, that this market would not continue to close down. Well, there was no hope for it restarting. It had no chance to restart. And the reason is a nutshell, in a nutshell, is that most of the securities that came through that market had been mispriced. And people were holding these securities that had been priced wrong in the first place when they first came to market. We didn't fully understand that, but we began to understand it as 07 unfolded and we get into 08. Those are the very securities that sit on bank balance sheets that are called toxic assets later. Securities that were purchased, mostly AAA securities. Securities with AAA ratings, it was not the, the bad securities that, went, that were the problem. Everybody knew that the other stuff was toxic waste, but it was the AAA securities that got in trouble. <coughs> now, I'm going to pretend you're all in my class. I'm going to try to explain to you in a simple way how that disaster came about. Why the AAA tranches of the asset-backed securities market, which was the majority of the market, why that market came apart. Now, let me... Let me give you an example. This is not exactly an example, but it's very close to how asset-backed securities work. Let's suppose that we have two mortgages. One is in Seattle and one is in Charlottesville. And in every way, they're identical. Two mortgages. And let's say they're $100,000 a piece. So I have $200,000 worth of mortgages in total. And now I'm going to create two new securities. I'm going to create a tranche A for you, and a tranche B for my good friend here. You get the toxic friend, Derwood. <coughs> and here's how these securities are going to work. Every month when homeowners pay their mortgage, 
I'm going to pass those through to tranche A and tranche B. So I'm just creating a security out of these two mortgages. And you're going to get one and you're going to get the other. The only wrinkle is <coughs> you get paid as long as at least one of the mortgages is still live and kicking. You take the first loss. If one of the mortgages goes bad, then you don't get paid. It doesn't matter which one. The one in Seattle or the one in Charlottesville. Now that's very similar to how asset-backed securities are actually created. You protect one security by subordinating the interests of the others to the, to the one. That's the ultimate principle of credit shifting in an asset-backed security. Now how do I price your security and how do I price your security? Well, let's suppose that there's a 10% chance that each mortgage will go under. So you have these two mortgages, and there's a 1 in 10 chance that they're going to go under. What's the chance you won't get paid? Well, it's 1 in 10 chance for each. You get paid as long as they both don't go under. So what's the probability that neither one of them, I'm sorry, that both of them go under? got one mortgage here, another mortgage here. What's the probability that they both go under? No. One of them's in Seattle, one of them's in Charlotte, entirely different places, so it's one-tenth times one-tenth, isn't it? So there's a one-one-hundredth chance that you're not going to get paid. You've got a 99% chance of being paid. You're a triple A. Now, I hate to tell you, Derwin, but 19% is right about Derwin. You're a triple C, Derwin. Good luck. <coughs> so these securities were sold as triple A, and as a result, they got very low interest rates, and banks were manufacturing these securities. And banks like commercial, uh, commercial and investment banks. Lehman Brothers was a big creator. Uh, Lehman Brothers was really good at this business. Uh, other companies like Credential was no good at this business. I enjoy listening to their commercials now where they say, we didn't make those mistakes like those other guys did. <laughs> they didn't understand the business, thank goodness for them. <laughs> but Lehman and Goldman and all these guys, they hired the smart guys who knew how to do this stuff. And Merrill Lynch was a Johnny-come-lately. They hired some of the smart guys to do this stuff. And Bear Stearns always had the smart guys to do this stuff. So if you were smart, then you got into this business and you created these things. And it was kind of nice, because here you took securities that had a 10% chance of failing, which is pretty high, and you created a security with half of that money that has only a 1% chance of failing. So I can, get, I can peddle this at a very low interest rate, and <coughs> it, I had to pay a little bit higher interest rate to Derwood, but not too much higher. 19 is higher than 10, but it's not the same as going from 10 to 1. Well. Let me change the example a little bit and you can see where the problem is. What happens if these two mortgages are flip sides of a duplex and it's owned by the same family? And one can't pay anymore. Is the other one truly independent? They can't pay anymore? No. What happens, and we should have known it at the time, foreclosures aren't random events. The inability to pay a mortgage is not a random event. They're related. And if somebody can't pay a mortgage in Seattle, that increases the probability that somebody can't pay a mortgage in Charlottesville. They're not independent events. It should have never been a 1% assignment. In fact, it should have been closer to 10%. So the security you thought had a 99% chance of paying off, in reality only had a 93 or 94% chance of paying off. Wasn't a triple A in the first place. It was like a triple B or something like that. Now, if you were an investor, you were a pension fund or a university endowment, you would buy that security at par. You'd pay 100 for the security. And now, all of a sudden, people began to realize that security is not worth 100. It's worth 94. It's not worth zero because it's still paying. The mortgages are still paying. In 2007, mortgages were still paying, but all of a sudden that security you paid 100 for 
you had this uneasy feeling, uh-oh, if mortgages aren't really independent of one another, if mortgages tend to default in clusters, they either default a lot or never default, which is the truth. You either have periods where mortgages aren't defaulting or they default in waves. If that's the case, those mortgages are related. So that you've way overpriced tranche A, and you got a good deal turned out. You got a good deal. Your security wasn't near as risky. But <clears throat> so that was the problem showed up in the AAA tranches. And as Wall Street manufactured these asset-backed securities, they were like a manufacturing plant. Before they could get them out the door, they ended up with some of these AAA on their balance sheet, a lot, because they were producing a lot. So Merrill Lynch and Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs had a lot of these AAA tranches on their balance sheet. Now in 07, some of the hedge funds began to say, uh-oh, if, if this mortgage problem becomes a route, your balance sheets are no good. Those $100 assets, 100 priced assets, you gotta mark them down to 93. And the response was, why do I have to mark this down? It's still paying. I'm still getting the cash flow. I don't need to mark this down. It's perfectly good security. And the critics would say, yeah, try to sell it. Because by that time, it became well known that your 100 security is only worth 92 or 93 in the open market. And so there became the mark-to-market controversy. Should banks have to mark these assets to market? Now, if they weren't, if they were already failing, if you're not getting the, the payments, that's a different issue. But that wasn't the issue in 07. In 07, these AAA securities were still getting their payments. They weren't defaulting at that time. So a battle emerged about the value of these securities. And the first sign of that battle coming to an end was when Bear Stearns failed in March of 2008. Now, how did Bear Stearns fail? Did they fail because their balance sheet was no good? We'll never know the answer to that. We'll never know how valuable the Bear Stearns balance sheet was. Bear Stearns failed because it was a liquidity crisis. They couldn't come up with enough cash to keep going. They had exactly the same problem that banks historically had before the FDIC. Bear Stearns funded 20 to 30% of all their lending overnight. And the guys overnight said, we won't provide the cash anymore. That's like a run on the bank. What happened to Bear Stearns was a run on the bank. Now at that point, that scared everybody in Wall Street because all of Wall Street, all the investment banks, have a lot of overnight funding, including Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and everybody. So everyone was nervous. What if it comes to us? That's why when you read books about this crisis, you'll see that firms realize that this could get to them. The reason it could get to them is not that their balance sheet was terrible or anything else, it's that they had 20 to 30% of their funding in the overnight market. And if that dried up through rumor or anything, they were done. They could not show up with enough cash to survive. So in the summer, the Fed and the Treasury realized that there was a problem. Um, and they began to talk about doing certain things to alleviate what was clearly going to be a liquidity crisis for our Lehman Brothers, for our AIG, for Merrill Lynch, for Goldman Sachs, for Morgan Stanley. But they never really did much of anything. And by the time you get to September of 08, then you have a series of firms in big trouble. AIG, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, all in trouble. And so the Fed had already been criticized when Bear Stearns went down because the Fed had guaranteed $29 billion of Bear Stearns assets to entice J.P. Morgan to take over Bear Stearns. That's what, in fact, happened. J.P. Morgan took over Bear Stearns. And they were enticed to do that by the Fed's guarantee. And it was a public outcry. This is a bailout. You shouldn't be putting taxpayer dollars up doing this. So when they got to September of 08, there was a strong public sentiment against bailing anybody out. And Lehman was the firm on the chopping block. And Lehman was pretty comfortable that they'd get bailed out some way. I don't think it ever dawned on Richard Fall that it was all over until it was all over. On Sunday, September 4th, 
when the government said there's just nothing going to happen here, prepare for a bankruptcy. Now, there's a real question about whether the Lehman bankruptcy was what caused all the trouble. If you look at the data, it's not very clear because Lehman declared bankruptcy in the morning of September 5th. The stock market didn't collapse until two weeks later. The stock market kind of hung in there for two weeks. The stock market, ironically, collapsed right after TARP was passed. If you want to draw a picture of when the stock market collapsed, as you recall, TARP did not pass the first time. There was a revolt in the House of Representatives. An unusual coalition emerged in the House of Representatives. And in this regard, there's a book out called Game Change, which has the story completely wrong. On page 392, on page 392 in Game Change, you'll find in there that it says that the Republicans voted as a block against TARP in the House. It's not true. In fact, the majority of Republicans, a bare majority, voted against TARP, but all the leadership voted in favor of TARP, including Boehner and Cantor and everybody else. It was a coalition of a minority of Republicans and the Black Caucus and the Latin Caucus. That was the group that defeated TARP. And in fact, a majority of the Black Caucus and the Latin Caucus voted against it the second time around as well, and a smaller minority of Republicans. So TARP passes. The stock market then has the worst seven days in its history. There are no seven days worse than the period from the day TARP passed seven days after that. And it hits the bottom in the 8,000 area. <coughs> and now you ask a lot of questions like things like, what would have happened if TARP had not passed? Or we had not had a TARP? One of the problems in economics, and this is the nature of the discipline that I teach, is that we don't know as much as we pretend to know. Well, like I'm occasionally on CNBC and, and Fox Business News and stuff like that. Um, and I was on Reuters a couple of weeks ago and they, they ask you questions. They say, well, Professor Burton, how do you see the economy doing da 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 da? Well, if you injected me with truth serum, <laughs> the answer would be, how would I know? But if you give that answer, you're not going to get invited back, and you can't, <laughs> you can't brag to all your students that you were on Reuters and stuff like that. That's the reason you get on there, so you can brag to your students that you were on, put clips on your website and stuff. So you come up with an answer. It's like the guys every night on CNBC when you ask for the market going up or down, or why did it go up? Why did the market go up today? Well, QE2. The next day it goes down. Why did the market go down? Well, people don't think QE2 is going to take place. Because they come up with something that you and I could probably come up with just as well, because the true answer, I won't tell you what the true answer is, but you can guess what the true answer is. But we have a subject in economics called macroeconomics. Macroeconomics is somewhat of a joke. <laughs> if, I, if I ask you, do you think tax cuts will get us out of this recession are spending increases. Which is more likely? Spend more money or cut taxes? Now I know your politics. <laughs> the answer to that question tells me, tells me whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't tell me anything about economics because macroeconomics is witchcraft. <laughs> it is, the, the cold hard truth is we don't know. We don't know if spending or tax cuts will get us out of this. And it could be that spending could get you out of one kind of recession but not another. It could be tax cuts could get you out of one kind and another. It could even be that even talking about it and jockeying these things around is destabilizing in itself. That constantly changing policies and so forth creates havoc and difficulty for people trying to function in, in, the, in the everyday world. And there is a fourth possibility, which I have to confess I subscribe to. <laughs> the fourth possibility is when something goes wrong, like suppose I come up to you and just whack you in the shoulder, right? You wouldn't like that, I bet. <laughs> but the question is, when does it stop hurting? 
give me something right away. When is it going to heal? Well, there might not be a silver bullet to make it heal within the next 10 minutes. And an economy might not heal within the next six months or a year or two years just by doing something. It may simply take time to work out inventory corrections and deleveraging and things like that. And efforts by the government to do something, no matter how well-intentioned, of any type, tax cuts, tax increases, spending cuts, spending increases, regulations, all of that stuff probably is counterproductive. And the best example we know of, and we always go back and look at the Great Depression, because in the Great Depression, and in those days they didn't know anything. Now we think we know something. <laughs> now we, we look back to John Maynard Keynes and all of his writings in the 20s when British went, the British went back on the gold standard. Keynes, in the effort to keep Churchill from doing that, Churchill was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, he developed his modern theory of macroeconomics in that context in 1925. And um, in, in that period, macroeconomics became the idea that you spend money. Well, when, and to get you out of recession, when Hoover was president, he didn't read any of that, and he didn't believe any of that either. He was elected in 1928 and uh, was sworn into office in March of 29. In those days, presidents were sworn in in March, not January. And Hoover could see that after the crash of the stock market in 29, he could see there was a problem. <coughs> now, if he had followed my advice, he would have said, so what? <laughs> but, but I wasn't around to advise him. So he said, well, we've got to do some things. First thing he did is he got all the businessmen together and had them agree to not lower wages. No matter what happened, we're not going to lower wages, no matter what happens in this economy. So they all signed a statement they wouldn't. Next thing he did was the Smoot-Hawley tariff. That was a Republican idea. He got the Smoot-Hawley tariff in there. It wasn't really to protect industry, it was to protect agriculture. That was his main motive for the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Well, the economy and everything just got worse. If you think the stock market fell in 1929, it did. It fell from 380 to 320. But by the time you got to 1932, in 1932 when Hoover was being renominated for Republican candidate for president, the stock market was 40. And it dropped 90% from the highs of September 29. Unemployment was 25%. One third of all commercial banks in the US had failed. It was a disaster beyond anything the U.S. had ever seen before or would see again. Now, what happened is many things were tried then. Roosevelt, by his own admission, had no idea what to do. He would be the first guy to admit, I have no idea. And he listened to everybody and he tried everything. And there was a strong economic recovery through 34, 35, 36. And then the economy double dipped. It cratered in 37. It was still bad in 39. 1939, this is 10 years after the stock market crash and six years after Roosevelt was sworn in, unemployment rate was 20%, 20% on the eve of World War II. <coughs> now, people have concluded historically that the war is what got the economy out of the Great Depression. I suspect that's not really the right answer. Close to the right answer, but it's not the right answer. In the 30s, Roosevelt reacted much like the Obama administration reacted. We got this problem, let's put all these new rules in place. Roosevelt put the National Recovery Act in place, for example, and a variety of other things. Huge new series of regulations for the economy, all designed to help, to make things work better. Obama, I think, with a similar vision with the Democratic Congress passed the enormous number of new regulatory bills. Forget about health care and cap and trade. If you just look at bills like the credit card reform legislation, the credit card reform legislation, well-meaning though it is, has the effect of denying low-income people credit cards. That's the main impact. And many of these things have that impact. You want to do something to help people. You see people in crisis. So you quickly come up with something. Whereas if you just slept an extra hour or two, 
and might have been better off than, than what's going to happen. What probably happened when World War II started, when the spending started, is immediately the government cut all the red tape that was in the economy. All the red tape that existed in the 30s was just eliminated for the war effort. It's got rid of all these, let's sack all these rules, let's, get, let's go fight those guys over in Europe. And so all of a sudden the economy got freer than it had ever been. Now it had some controls, it had rationing of tires and gasoline and this, that, and the other. But the economy in World War II was very free. If you were producing for the government, you had a lot of freedom to do it. So all of a sudden people got excited and you, business boomed. And everybody thought after World War II ended, the economy would fall apart. It didn't. The economy didn't. With all the soldiers coming back with a complete shift from wartime to peace, it didn't. Because the economy had become significantly freer in terms of regulations and rules because of what happened in World War II. And so when you enter the 50s, you have a much uh, less regulatory regime than you had in the period in the 30s. Much of that, I think, parallels today's situation. Uh, I often say that what happened to us is we have a lot of bull market remedies in the midst of a bear market. It might have been okay to do health care and cap and trade and this and that if the economy was strong. But when the economy is weak, it's very hard to put a huge amount of new regulatory uh, structure in place. I'm not saying I'm for or against or whatever. Unfortunately, politics always sneaks into any economics talk. It's just unavoidable, I'm afraid. I wish it was avoidable. But the huge new regulatory burdens that have been placed on the economy will make this economy slower to come out of this than it would have been. And it will adversely affect the very groups that it was intended to help. If you look at the very groups who are penalized the worst in a recession, let me talk about unemployment. My students don't face the big problem of unemployment. The national unemployment level for people with college degrees is 4%. No major crisis for college-educated people. It's the people below that who don't have the college education, who are competing for thirty and thirty-five thousand dollar a year jobs. They're the ones that are dramatically hurt by all this. A ten thousand dollar mandate on a thirty thousand dollar employee is a big deal. A ten thousand dollar mandate on a hundred thousand dollar employee is not as big a deal. So many of these things adversely affect the people that are in desperate situations. I mean, the real unemployment problem is among minorities. It's for people over the age of 50, people without adequate educational skills. Those are the people that need jobs, but most of the programs that have been advanced make it more difficult for them to get jobs. It doesn't impede my students' ability to get jobs. We're still selling kids to Wall Street and all over the place like there's no tomorrow. There's no job shortage for college grads. So that is my background. Now I've got to get the predictions. This is what I think happened. What I think happened in a nutshell is that you had a housing bust and it was magnified by the collapse of the asset-backed securities market. Now, you'll continue to have that, by the way, because we have housing booms and busts throughout our history. And the re reason we do is we tax favor housing. Um, all of you in real estate will hate this, but government policy is to tax favor the purchase of housing and as long as it's that policy it's irrational for an average person not to speculate on their home if you don't speculate on your home you're irrational that's the only place you can get tax-free gains that's the only place you can deduct the interest there's no other place i always tell my students when you get out of here forget the stock market go put down a dollar and buy a home you can't afford way bigger and if it doesn't work, you just leave the penny on the table and move to another state. But all you do is hit once, and then you've got a nice tax-free gain of whatever it is. You can't do that in the stock market. No way to do that in any other market. Now, if you don't believe that that's the reason, look at Canada. How different is Canada culturally from the U.S. if you just cross the border from New York State or Michigan or something into Canada? Canada does not have a housing boom and bust. They don't tax favor housing. Canada got through this fine. They have much higher down payments on all their housing markets. They didn't have a problem. And this is not some country 
across the ocean. This is a country as culturally identical to the U.S. as you can get, Canada, with the same motives and everything else. So the U.S. is, is plagued to continue to have these housing booms and busts. All right, so where are we going now? What's, gonna, what's the future? Are we going to double dip? Is this going to be a 1937-type fall-off down? The answer to that, I think, unequivocally no. The economy is coming out of the recession. It's coming out of it slowly, but it's inevitably coming out of it. We're not going to have periods where you have a couple of quarters of negative economic growth. It's not going to happen. The economy is not going to fall apart here. It is constantly growing. Now, it's growing without producing jobs. So we constantly have this large unemployment problem, and that's going to persist for two, three years um, until something changes vis-a-vis uh, -vis policy. But the economy will grow out of it. Why will it grow out of it? What's different today than, say, the 30s? Uh, there are a lot of differences, but one of the most important and overlooked differences is that the rest of the world is doing great. Only the U.S. and Europe, and really just Western Europe, are mired in a recession. If you look at Asia, they're booming. Asia's got it going great, and I don't mean just China. I mean everywhere you look. Japan has its usual slow growth, but even Japan is growing. But all the peripheral countries like Singapore and Malaysia and these countries, they're doing great. Taiwan, they're just doing great. Not only that, go to Latin America. As long as you're not in Venezuela, life is great. It's booming right along. Brazil's doing great. Argentina's doing great. Go to Eastern Europe. Russian GDP was up 8.8% last quarter. The only Eastern European country that's flat on its back is Romania. So when you get away from Western Europe and the U.S., you've got strong economies. That's going to help us. You want to be in a neighborhood where everybody else in the neighborhood is doing good. I always have to tell my children, you want to be in a class where the other kids are doing well and often beating you, because that's going to be good for you. It's true in the economy, too. You want to cheer for Asia. You want to cheer for Eastern Europe. That's good for us. And that will help us, long run, get through our current economic crises. But what will slow it down, which everybody knows, is that Western Europe and the U.S. have a debt crisis. It's a debt crisis that won't go away. Within three years, Greece will go bankrupt. No way out of it. Now, it'll be a workout. Greece will do like Argentina. They'll say, you know that $100 bond I sold you? Here's 20 cents. So they'll do what we call a workout. It'll all look great. Hey, they're working out of their debt. You get 10 cents on the dollar. You get 20 cents on the dollar. They'll clean the slate. They'll say, now we're going to sell some new bonds. And guess what? Now we're really going to do some austerity. Forget that stuff in the past. Well, we don't have any debt. Think of that. We're really good credit. So Greece will go that way. Spain will go that way. Italy will go that way. And the question is, will the European Union let them go that way? Now, let me give you an analogy. The exact same problem exists for California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois. They are in the same situation. They can't print their own coin and currency. If California could print its own currency, it wouldn't have any trouble. Just run the printing press. Pay all its bills with the printing press. Might have a little inflation. <coughs> I remember one time, I'm not doing time-wise. Tell this quick story. When I was um, an undergraduate, I worked at the Treasury Department. And one of my jobs in the Office of Tax Analysis was to write letters back when people would write their congressmen. They'd say, dear congressman so-and-so, why is our national debt so high or something? And I would draft the letter to return it. Well, one day, some lady wrote in to John Kennedy, he was president in 1963 when I was working in, in, the, in the Treasury, right across the street from the White House. And this lady wrote in and said, Dear President Kennedy, aren't we going to go bankrupt? I mean, we're spending all this money and we're not taking anything in, blah, blah, blah. So I crafted the letter. And it said, Dear Ms. So-and-so, according to Article 5, Section 2 of the Constitution, the U.S. government has the right to coin and print the currency. Therefore, by definition, we can't go bankrupt. If we have to pay a bill, we simply run the printing presses, pay the bill, and all is well. That letter went out over John Kennedy's signature. 
And two days later, on the editorial page of the San Diego Chronicle, there was the letter from John F. Kennedy. <laughs> but I was right. I mean, you can't go bankrupt if you can point and print your own currency because you can pay off your bills by printing things. Not a great policy, but, but you can do it. But California doesn't have that. They can't print their own currency. Greece doesn't have that. They can't print their own currency. They're in the euro. So they've got to work something out. Eventually, California will have to work something out. So will New Jersey, so will New York. There will be municipal defaults in the U.S. No question about it. And if the U.S. government decides to intervene, then heaven help you. There's no way they can. They need to let these places default just as the European Union needs to let Greece default. Everybody would be better off. Greece would be better off, and so would the European Union. Bankruptcy is not that terrible. It isn't. General Motors would have been better off if they'd let them go bankrupt. What they did was far worse. Bankruptcy just means you shift the keys to the new owner. Often the company is healthier. They, wear, they don't have the same debt load they used to have. The equity guys are gone. Bankruptcy is sometimes the only way. Just imagine that you own $10 million, right? You owe $10 million. And let's say your income is 12000 a year, and it's never going to get any higher. <laughs> I have a strategy for you, and it's the right strategy. You go to whoever loaned you the $10 million, you go to whoever loaned you the $10 million, and you say, I'm going to give you 20 bucks for that and then we're going to wipe the slate clean. They'll be so happy they got the 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a win-win. So with that cloud on the horizon, and it's a cloud that you will continue to see, the debt problems, the sovereign debt problems in, in Europe, and particularly Greece, Spain, what we call the pigs, which are Portugal, Italia, Italy, uh, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, at least three of those countries, and probably all five, will go bankrupt. But they'll do it in a workout way, which is the right way. There's nothing wrong with it. That's the way it should have happened in the first place. And I think you're going to see in the U.S. a similar situation develop with California, New York, Illinois, and New Jersey. It's hard to see how those states have any chance, no matter what austerity program they put in place. There is no way they can pay off their indebtedness. Most of that that's on the books and the pension indebtedness that is not on the books. For example, if you take the two biggest pension funds in California, their unfunded liabilities are calculated correctly, not the way they calculate it, correctly is $1 trillion. Now let's take the nine largest counties in California. They have pension funds too. Their unfunded liability is $400 billion. So just in those pension funds, you've got $1.4 trillion. It's not even in their budget. When they're talking about being all this money that they don't have, they don't even count this. This is off the, off the books. There's no way. California can't make it. And rich people are leaving in droves. Businesses are leaving in droves. The tax base is eroding. You see the same thing in New York. You're going to see the same thing in Illinois. People leave when they know their tax rates are going to be doubling and tripling and so forth. So these states are going to have to do what Greece is going to have to do. Now, <coughs> that all sounds sad. But those are not big issues. An economy can recover through that. Europe, <laughs> they can. <laughs> well, if you hold the debt, it's kind of a bad day. But, <laughs> 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 but economies can recover with that, and it rationalizes the debt, which it ultimately has. If, if the debt can't be paid, then the sooner it's acknowledged and, and written off, the better everyone is, the debtor and the creditor combined. That's, that's why you have bankruptcy laws. And they're good. They're not bad things. So I see a good future. I see an economy that will grow out of this. Um, and I think eventually uh, there'll be efforts made to make the labor markets a little bit freer so that people at the bottom have some hope of getting jobs. Right now, there are so many constraints to the ability of people who aren't well-educated to get jobs that it's going to be very difficult to hire them in large numbers. But I think eventually policy will create exceptions. That's the way it'll work. And then we'll be able to put people back to work and the economy will get going. The American economy, left to its own devices, can recover, no matter what kind of constraints you stick upon it. 
Uh, we've seen the Chinese economy, which was the most hamstrung economy in the world, turn itself around on a dime just 15 years ago. And it's now the second largest economy in the world, and in short order will be the largest economy in the world. It's not that hard to free up various areas of the economy, and they've been quite successful at doing that. So, where's my timer? Am I done? <laughs> I'm done. Thank you very much for listening to all this. We'll take questions in the Virginia room. If you'll go with us into the Virginia room. We Who has a question? Can we start? Yes. You hear often that America is a service economy compared to other economies in the world. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It's often mentioned in a negative connotation. The question is, is America's more and more a service economy, not a manufacturing economy, for example. Uh, well, most of what we now spend is services. If you look at what people are buying, they, they're classed as services. You don't spend that much of your money on food and, and kind of manufacturing-type things. Um, so it's good to be a leader in the service world. You know, the idea that you have to, quote, produce something, I mean, Steve Jobs produces something. It's not the same as producing a, a widget, maybe, but people want to buy it, and they want to pay a lot of money for it, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. So I don't think it's... An economy is about what people want to buy. When people want to buy services, that's, I think, you want to be there. The main thing that we have historically been good at is things that require a lot of human capital. For example, that's why we're so strong in technology. Now, we had to import a lot of that recently. There are a lot of Indian names in Silicon Valley. Uh, but still, the focal point of that is still Silicon Valley, and it'll stay that way for quite a while, I think. So I think those are pluses. Uh, we're highly dependent upon petroleum in our economy. Have you a reaction to the peak oil theory and its impact in the years ahead? Yeah, we, you know, we periodically go through this every five or ten years. Uh, I remember having these discussions. I grew up in an oil state. I grew up in Texas. My dad was an oil man, as a matter of fact. He was a wildcatter. Um, I've always thought the right proposal, if you want to eliminate the dependence on oil, is to put a future barrel price tax on. For example, announced today that starting in eight years, there's going to be a $20 a barrel tax on oil that goes to 30 40 50 60 and the year's out. And the idea is everyone can see that tax coming, and therefore, companies can start up and provide alternatives, but no one ends up paying the tax, hopefully. The tax is so far out that people have the ability to retool and avoid it. And that's what I, I don't like taxes where you just tax something and then there's a deadweight hit. It's almost better to try to encourage <coughs> other alternatives by taxing something out of existence, but you tax it out of existence at a future date. But I can't sell anybody on that. But you also have to really do it. You have to put it in place and leave it there. It's probably a good idea, by the way. I mean, no matter where you are on the environmental issues, someday you kind of don't want everything to boil down to oil and gas. Yes? In your uh, talk, you mentioned pension funds in California. Would you mind commenting about the uh, pension fund in Virginia? <laughs> well, I'm all over the paper yesterday morning. I don't I don't know if you read that. Um, I was quoted last year in the Roanoke Times as saying, what, what lie are we going to tell the governor and the General Assembly this year? Um, it's embarrassing how, how we don't tell the straight truth about what our pension liabilities are in Virginia or anywhere else. Um, what we tell people is that we have $50 billion in assets and then our liabilities are 70 billion. My calculation of our liabilities is it's more like 120 billion. So that instead of having a 20 billion problem, we have a 70 billion dollar problem in, in Virginia. And I don't think we're getting that message through to the General Assembly and to the governor adequately. Um, and we don't have the juiciest pension system. We're not like California, we're not retiring people at $300,000 pensions. I don't know how they plan to fund all that. 
but we do pay if you add in Social Security we pretty much people are retiring on more money than they made if you add Social Security in so it's not teachers for example that have been in the system 25 or 30 years and retire if you take what we give them in Social Security it's more than they were making as a teacher typically or very close to it so it's not a terrible system in terms of the, the beneficiaries but we don't put anything aside it's a mini version of Social Security. You make all these promises of everything you're going to do in the future, and you say, we're going to give all these people all this money. How much are we going to put aside to pay for it? Nothing. So what you're really doing is you're giving all these people money, and you're asking people who aren't alive to pay for it. That's really what's going on. And that's what's going on with the state pension. state pension system, just think Social Security, it's exactly the same issue. Nobody's putting the money away to take care of it. And so what boards do, our board and every other board, they find some way to make it look not so bad. They smooth the asset values. They use a discount rate of 7 or 7.5% 7 instead of 4. There's, there's an artistry to figuring out how to keep people from worrying about this problem. But that doesn't make the problem go away. For example, we have $50 billion in assets. This year, we will pay down $2 billion out of that fund in terms of expenses for benefits beyond the contributions that we take in. That's true. We had a good year in investments. We made $7 billion in investments. But we're not going to make $7 billion every year. And so you're on the pay down side. You're paying down your assets. That's where we are in Virginia. It's a very serious problem. And, and no political party is on the on the good side on this issue. I mean, my fights have been mostly with people in my own political party, as some of you who follow the papers probably know. But no one's no one's no one's willing to tackle this problem. So supposedly in the trenches, everyone is a Keynesian. Um, do you foresee a potential bullwhip effect with inflation, given how much uh, quantitative easing there is currently? Number one, I don't think quantitative easing will help. And number two, I think it sets the stage for a severe inflation problem later. Um, um, Bernanke's strongly in favor of it because he's convinced uh, of the Friedman argument that the 30s, the reason the 30s were so bad is that the Fed didn't counteract the decline in the money supply. Um, now we don't even know what the money supply is. Is it M1? Is it M2? Is it M3? M4? We have no idea. Once people quit paying all their bills by cash and check and started paying them in other obscure ways, and we have students who never have any cash or anything in their checking account, and they buy a lot of stuff. So the means of payments change dramatically, and therefore the instruments of policy, are we don't understand them as well. Money and banking is another course that I would label witchcraft in the modern world. <laughs> well, we don't know what money is. You know, we all, it's one of those things that everybody says, I know what money is, but when you go try to count it up in the, what is it? Credit cards? Treasury bills? Cash? And if you don't know what, the quanti what it is, then you can't very well have a theory of its impact. It's just naively, if they, if they start monetizing the debt, that's <laughs> probably going to be very inflationary at some point. Massive gridlock. That sounds like a political question. Well, if it's one of the things the economy has suffered from since 2007, and by the way, this is a bipartisan thing. I mean, the Republicans have been no better than the Democrats on dealing with this stuff. They made a huge number of errors, in my opinion, in 2008 in dealing with the recession. But the, the biggest problem is policy just keeps changing. Um, I don't know if the long-term capital gain rate on January 5th is going to be 15 or 40. So how do you decide what to do in an environment like that. There needs to be a stability of policy even if you don't agree with the policy. <laughs> Just to get the rules of the game, rules of the road in place. And, and that, since 2007, 
we haven't known what the rules of the game. I mean, in 2008, it was unbelievable. They passed the TARP on the grounds that they're going to buy toxic assets. Within 48 hours, they decide we're not going to buy toxic assets. They asked for $800 billion with, with almost no thought, and then they changed the whole purpose of the program, and they just dump it into the commercial and investment banks. Why? And they put it in a lot of banks that just didn't want it. A lot of banks said, hey, we don't want this. And it, the whole thing, and it was very destabilizing. I would, I would count the problems with the stock market during that period as having a lot to do with the un, unstable policy. Was Lehman going to get bailed out? No, we're not bailing out anybody. And then they let Lehman go, and the next day they're bailing out AIG. So the policy just kept changing every 24 hours. And I think in, in, in large measure that's a Republican uh, that has to be laid at the doors of the Republicans. And I think on the Democratic side, and I think most would, would agree at this point, probably even President Obama, to have an, an ambitious social agenda in the middle of a recession is a difficult thing. And particularly if the social agenda involves massive new regulations and involves massive new regulations on your lending institutions. I mean, the commercial banks in this country have no idea what they're supposed to do. And they're scared to death. And, and underneath all this, the regulators are giving them a tremendous amount of trouble. This doesn't show up in the paper, but if you're on a bank board, you know it. Anybody on a bank board in here? Yeah, the regulators are not nice. They are saying, nope, you can't do that. No more lending in that area. They are tough as nails right now, and that's, we need lending. You, you need lending to get out of a situation like this. This is where you should relax the rules, not tighten them. You can relax them when you're in boom time. We're tightening them at the wrong moment. This is where you want people to loan on weaker credits. You want people to make loans that may not look as good because people don't look as good. Most people's net worth is not where it was two years ago. They're not as good at credits when they walk into the bank. So you need to acknowledge that if you want a recovery and kind of go with that. Uh, after uh, World War II, you said that uh, a lot of people expect, like I say, economists expected the economy in the United States to go down. But my impression has always been, well, Europe's economy had been destroyed, Japan's economy had been destroyed. We were the one country to emerge stronger than anyone else. And I think that has gone a long way toward why we had one family incomes in the 50s, etc. We're now in a world where we've got serious competition around the world, the Indians, the Chinese. You can't fault people around the world from trying to earn a decent wage. And in China, if you can go from $5 a day to $10 a day, that's great news. But we've got workers that won't do that. It's going to obviously have to be adjusted. I just wanted to get a sense of, of uh, to me, we, we still face some very strong challenges because of this competition. I want to just get a sense of, of your thought on this. Well, well you, you make a good point. I mean, what, if you take your skill set, yeah. and if that skill set is the same as somebody's skill set in China, you're gonna, the wage rates are going to start closing toward each other. There's no way out of that. And so the proper solution is to try to figure out how to increase people's skill sets if you can so that they go into areas where there isn't an abundance of this and if you look at most uh, america doesn't face this problem as severely as some other countries because we have a large number of highly educated people in this economy so does western europe uh, but the people at the bottom are the ones that struggle here people who don't get the education don't finish high school they're competing with the people of similar skill sets. Uh, and that's a problem that won't go away until we figure out our educational system, particularly at the early ages, not University of Virginia. We do fine. We don't need any more money. We don't need any. Oba shouldn't have said that. Pardon me. <laughs> Right, but they, they may need three times more. Remember, their population is multiple of ours. And they're doing a lot of, they're doing infrastructure kind of stuff that we might have done in the 50s. So China's got big challenges, by the way. Uh, it's not easy over there, although I have to say no society in history has moved 350 million people in a dozen years from 
the backwater of rural China to a modern world. I think China's done a good job. And I think they're they're trying to continue to do that. It's always going to be tough now as the world gets global. I mean, everything you do now, you have to think of your competitor as being in Thailand or something. I don't care what you do, Harley. Um, even if you're a lawyer, you may be getting your briefs from Malaysia. And doctors are getting their <laughs> their diagnoses from India. <laughs> it's very much a global world. Um, and that's just the way it's going to be. So... We, and when we think about what people need to do, we need to encourage people to continue to get more skills, I think. Um, but it's going to continue to have the divide between the haves and the haves-nots in the Western world. Because the haves will be people with education and skill set, and the have-nots will be people without it. And there's not, even with tax policy, much you can do about that. It requires changing the skill sets long run. Yes. First shoe to fall was the residential real estate market. Why do you not think the commercial real estate market is going to be the second shoe? You know, I have been shocked by the commercial real estate market. I thought it would be. I sit on the board of a public REIT. We're the largest office holder in Manhattan, for example. We're bigger than Vornado in Manhattan. Our stock went from, well, it was $155 a share. I thought I was riding high at one fifty-five a share. When it ticked at $8 a share in, in October of 08, I was riding low, I can tell you. And it looked like uh, commercial real estate was done. And the reason is half of all commercial real estate funding comes through the asset-backed securities market up to that point. And you knew that wasn't going to roll. When those things came due, they weren't going to roll them. But surprise, surprise, Credit came into the commercial real estate market. And re commercial real estate has stabilized. Now, how long? There are different branches of commercial real estate. Well, for example, in New York, the market I know best, um, rents are moving up and building prices are getting back to some of the absurd levels. For example, we were involved in 510 Madison, which is a, one of the best buildings in Manhattan. And Boston Properties bought it for what has to be like $1,000 a square foot. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The prices of 0506. So, but Washington's holding in okay. Uh, it's a little weaker, I would say. Um, I don't know. Commercial real estate has surprised me. Uh, it's held up now in the small towns. It's not holding up too well. Agreed. Yeah, small towns. But it's in small towns. It has more of the characteristics of retail than it would have in the large cities. In New York, by the way, the reason real estate's holding up there, commercial real estate, is not Wall Street. It's all these other things, retailing and stuff. It's just booming. Companies I never heard of, but your children and grandchildren know who they are. They're, they're, they're renting a lot of space. Yes? Uh, this, this relates to the first part of your talk. It seems to me one of the bad guys in, in, the, in the collapse of the uh, economy was the rating agencies. I mean, these people must have known they weren't giving, when they were giving AAA ratings to the top tranches, that these weren't AAAs. I mean, it seems to me this is almost, I mean, this is scandalous. I guess I give the rating agencies a free pass when I think about this. Who is to blame for these toxic assets? Who is to blame for these AAA securities that really weren't worth that? I... At the end of the day, it's got to be the people that were selling them. It's got to be the senior people at Goldman and Merrill and Lehman. Because what they saw was it was like a sausage factory. The sausages came in, all these worthless cash flows came in, and you turned the machine, and out came all these wonderful cash flows with high ratings. I don't care how you do that. Logically, something's wrong. There should have been a trigger that how can you take all this? I mean, they were trying to get more subprime loans in 06 and 07. And they were building new subprime lenders because they wanted to take subprime lending and turn it into AAA securities. And they could do it. It should have been very obvious something was wrong there. Now, the rating agencies, they, what they saw is they took the, the percentage of default. That was, for example, that 1% number that I did in the talk, and then they assigned the rating on that. They didn't get underneath into the, what the mortgages were. 
So that's kind of why I give them a pass. That was their defined job. Now, you might say, well, they should have, but it really wasn't how they saw their job or how anybody else saw it. It's really more the senior leadership at, at the banks. They, I mean, even I had a sense during that whole period, something doesn't add up here. How can we have all this garbage can cash flow turn into diamonds and gold? Well, it didn't. It was garbage can cash flow that turned into garbage can cash flow. It just got sold as diamonds and gold. That's what really happened. And that's, by the way, the asset-backed securities market is just now beginning to come back. But you can see once you lose faith with the buying public, that's why it didn't come back. It's people no longer trusted any of the ratings they saw. And, and you could say it was the rating agencies, but I would think most market participants blame the Wall Street firms. Because the rating agencies, they didn't make a whole lot of money doing this. The people who made all the money doing this were the asset-backed securities departments at Lehman and Goldman and Merrill and, and all the other. And they were all in it if they could do it, only the ones that didn't understand it, like Prudential, were, were saved from this process. Or Wells Fargo, they couldn't figure it out either. So. But if you could figure out how to do it, you did it. And you hired all these uh, physics PhDs to do it. Anytime something's that easy, it's surely a red flag goes off in your mind. Anytime something's that easy, and particularly professionals. Richard Fall is not just like you or me. He's been in that business a long time. And I would say the same thing with Blank Fine and all these guys. And to see one area of your business make that much money when the input is trash. I don't know about the legalities, but something ethically is really wrong with that. That's where I would pin the blame, the Wall Street investment banks. And believe me, they've paid a big price. All those guys have paid huge prices for the mistakes they made, particularly Richard Fold. He's paid a big price. We may not. That could be the problem. We may just have lost our comparative advantage there. Uh, <laughs> this, this might be a good time to <laughs> So how many of you would return for